0: Hey, uh, Kelsey, we gotta record another commercial at that time of year.
1: Wow. Can we just reuse the one from last year, I think?
0: Well, we can't, because, like, Giving Tuesday's on a different Uh, day this year. Just change the date. Oh, yeah, good call. Okay. 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 Hey, Kelsey. We do a lot of work here at the Video Game History Foundation traveling to meet old game developers, maintaining our library, and making cool content. But, How do we pay for all this?
1: Well, Frank, we're a publicly funded charity. All of the work that we do is made possible through generous donations from video game fans all around the world. Hey, that
0: sounds just like our listeners. From Giving Tuesday, November 29th, through the end of this year, we'll be fundraising to help make the work we do possible. Our generous sponsors are even matching donations, dollar for dollar, so your impact is doubled.
1: So head on over to gamehistory.org/donate and give what you can. Every dollar helps.
0: Let's save video game history together. Okay, back back to the show. I don't All even right. think we need to do another.
1: Take. No, I think that was good. All <laughs> right, I'm stopping it. <laughs> Welcome to episode number 96 of the Video Game History Hour presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode we bring in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin. I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation and I'm here as always with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation.
0: And today's guest is computer and video game historian and NYU assistant professor and all around rad friend. Lane Nooney. Lane, God, welcome finally to the Video Game History Hour.
2: (laughs) Hi there. Lovely to be here. (laughs) Uh,
0: Lane's here today to tell us about Margot Comstock, uh, a giant in the world of software journalism in the early 80s who unfortunately passed away in October of this year. Um, Lane, you describe Comstock as being the center of the Apple II software universe. What what, what does that mean?
2: Uh, So Margot Comstock, around the time that she was 40 years old, she co-founded, along with her husband Al Tumervik, uh, she co-founded a computer, enthu- an Apple II computer enthusiast magazine called Softalk. And Softalk uh, started in it, it started in 1980. It ran until 1984, and it was one of the first places where there's a few unique things about Softalk. Softalk was it was a it was specifically not a programming magazine, so it was imagined to have a broader audience than you would typically think computer enthusiast magazines were, which up until that point were pretty focused on teaching people, you know, like hardcore programming stuff, hard, you know, hardware. Uh, you know, they expected you to have some kind of background in engineering. And then the other thing that was special about SoftTalk was it was really a place where the industry got to know each other. And so SoftTalk did a lot of features about or very, very early startup companies you know companies that have been around for 9 10 12 months some of the first i think the first journalism about sierra online lands in soft talk same for broderbund a lot of a lot of companies like that and they were the first magazine to be running pretty comprehensive sales rankings and that was all that was the kind of like all margot and al They really, they kind of fell in love with the Apple II, not necessarily as programmers, but people who just thought computers were going to change people's lives. And they wanted to build a magazine that reflected what they thought was really special, which was in fact, not like how cool this tech was, but how interesting all these people were. And so Margot especially... was the sort of extroverted center point for an entire social scene. If you imagine an industry happening in a time pre-social media, pre-internet, where are you going to find information about anything? And so the entire industry is organized around periodicals and newsletters. And so those, these kind of paper-based material forms of communication and interaction were all that people had in order to learn how to use computers and to learn how to to learn more about what was comprising the industry. And so Margot was at this perfect center point where she could, you know, if you needed to, if you wanted to advertise your game, you were calling up Margot. If you wanted to like get a game reviewed, you were calling up Margot. If you had quite, you know, she was like the literal kind of human phone operator uh, at this magazine. And so that meant everyone passed through her. And there's all sorts of stories of, uh, you know, Ken Ken and Mar-Bretta Williams wind up in direct contact with her. Uh, she is the reason Doug Carlston got some of his first sales when he was founding Broderbund. She put him in touch with his first distributor. Uh, stuff like that. Like um, it's it's hard to explain how small the industry was, and it really required the activity of these very hyperactive social connectors in order for it to grow. Well,
1: you mentioned in the uh, in the piece that you. Wrote for The Verge about Margot's life and, and her legacy and everything. Um, you kind of called you called Softusk something like um, the a proto Twitter for the <laughs> Apple II industry, and I thought that was a really cool and interesting way of thinking about it because you know that is that is how people kind of see what other you know what other companies exist, what other journalists exist, like who's talking about this, um, and you know pre social media was just it was kind of this magazine.
2: Yeah, I think there are two things that were especially Twittery about SoftTalk, distinct from other magazines. Uh, one was that Softtalk had this section called Open Discussion, now, which was basically a letters to the editor section. And if you look at Byte, Creative Computing, Popular Computing, any magazine from that period, they all have a letters to the editor section. But Softalks was like on steroids. Like it was Margot's mission to publish as many letters as she possibly could, and so she really understood it as a forum, rather than this kind of uh, this kind of dried up kind of content area, right, where you might publish like five or six letters from curious readers, and so you would have these very long standing exchanges that would kind of unfold over months between various letter writers responding to other people and then people bringing counterpoints. Uh, there was a debate about piracy that I think lasted over a year just in the pages of open discussion. And then soft talk also had this section called trade talk, which were these like really seriously, almost like Twitter length snapshots of what was going on at different companies. And they were very, uh, some of them become very like tongue-in-cheek or wry, or you can tell that the person writing them is sort of making fun of the person being written about. If you know all of their weird little internal dynamics, um, some of the big figures in that period are kind of specifically getting teased about certain things. Ken Williams was a constant source of like uh, getting getting fun poked at him, uh, and by whoever was writing these, you know, probably Margot or Al or somebody. So you had this sense that everyone was, that there was like an insider conversation happening in soft talk that I, I think if you go through other magazines like Byte or Creative Computing, you just don't quite see that sense of intimacy and interpersonality that I think is one of the things that makes soft talk a really unique archive for understanding the history of this time period.
0: I mean, it almost sounds more like what I'd call a, a zine than a magazine, <laughs> where, where it is more about... You know, the 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 community of of, of readers and, and contributors than it is about the subject matter at times.
2: Yeah, it was it was definitely a place where I think especially at the beginning, people felt like they were coming together. I think that feeling got strained as the industry grew and the magazine grew. I think the first issue of that magazine is like 32 pages long. And then four years later it's like several hundred, I think it like gets, it gets really big, uh, kind of pretty fast and trying to bind together what we think the Apple community is as it's growing so rapidly became a much more difficult proposition over time. Um, I
0: guess my, my question that comes to mind as we're talking about this is, is you mentioned this sort of Apple two community coming together. And, and it's, I think it's hard for people today to sort of visualize, um, that there's a community uh, bound together by you know a, a computer that they own um, <laughs> yeah I mean that I mean uh, I mean if we're talking like console war crap or whatever, I guess it's kind of easy to visualize but but I mean back then like I guess I guess the question if there is one is like what was a home computer user like when this magazine started in 1980 and, and how did this sort of differentiate from that?
2: I mean, geez, yeah, such a such a great question. It's I spend a lot of time trying to think about how to explain how different computing culture and use was during this time. I think there's so much that we assume is similar, right? Like computers are everyday to us now, and so because they they, you know, we can look at a computer from the 70s and we might think it's not that different from the computer we have today. Um, we, we assumed that maybe people like made sense of it easily or that these things were easy to use. And that was- Or at least it had similar uses
1: to how we use them today.
2: And these were just like totally alien technologies to most people like it is the case that most people had no idea what you were supposed to do with a computer there was this general idea that computing had something to do with math or science or technology and technology was important because technology was the future kind of right i mean so you were looking 1978 1979 1980 um, America's going through like some really big economic fallouts during this time, right? There's this global energy crisis, there's a massive recession, there's record unemployment, and people are trying to figure out what's America's next move. And the, the personal computer gets sort of proffered uh, to, to a public as the thing that you need to know how to use if you're going to kind of follow the curve of the American future. That's the big kind of ideological context for, or the, the kind of mental frame for what's going on, and but then you have all of these people trying to figure out what am I supposed to do with this thing. And and an important part is to keep in mind that right, computers during this time are not interoperable. So if you buy an Apple versus a TRS-80 or versus a Commodore PET, like you can't. You might as well not even bother communicating with someone who has a different kind of computer than you, because because the software is all different, the you know the hardware is all different, and these the way that the culture shaped was really kind of enclave focused. It really focused on you attached to your specific platform, and built a kind of fandom and community of know how around that platform, and the platform was kind of everything, right? Most, a lot of magazines, there were general kind of uh, computer enthusiast magazines, but most most people would have also, if they were real deep enthusiasts, they would have subscribed to platform specific coverage, right? And this is one of the things that causes magazines to get really big uh, into the mid 80s is that they're trying to cover all of the different platforms that are suddenly exploding, right? So you have Commodore, you have Tandy, you have Apple, you have uh, you have Texas Instruments, you have the Coleco, right? Uh, things get really unruly, really fast in this market. Um, yeah, so so there was there was strong sense of platform orientation in the community, and that it just isn't how we like like. There's a little of that around Apple now, but not in the same way where you're trying to like solve core problems about how to use a computer, and what you are supposed to do with it. Uh, Those questions were asked and answered a long time ago, right, in a certain sense. Um, Whereas there was a huge question mark, people bought computers with no idea what exactly they were going to do with them. That, That happened fairly frequently.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess that is another place to lead that question is like, why buy a computer in the late 70s or early 80s? What are you doing with it?
2: Yeah, so definitely I would say there was like a, you know, why did some people buy crypto when they didn't know what it was, right? Like, <laughs> right? Uh, why did people buy a VR headset if they never play games, right? Like, like there we often find these moments for economic expressions of larger forms of anxiety. Like we're trying to keep up or feel like we have a grasp on a thing that's about to come. Or that we've been told is important but we don't quite know why and and there's a lot of i think a lot of our history of technology expresses these kind of speculative interests right and so there was definitely a category of users who were just like well i've heard computers are important i guess i'll buy them right you have maybe i'm presenting this in kind of the wrong order but if you think of the if you think of the user base as a triangle the the narrowest but the deepest part is the hobbyist base right so these are guys who come to computing often because they in the 60s and early to mid 70s they were involved in like electronics hobbyism so a lot of these first guys who are interested in stuff like like building your own computer come out of like ham radio stuff right so these are guys who are usually have jobs in engineering They have a like for them. Engineering is is both an occupation and a hobby. They're some of the first commercial communities to take an interest in what might it look like to build your own computer, and then from there you have this gradation of trying to figure out how to make the computer more and more quote unquote usable to a larger base. Um, And so some people wind up, you know, they have some competency in computing, or maybe they used a mainframe when they were in college or something like that, but they're curious about this. What is this little box where all your computing power is on your desk, right? And so they buy one to teach themselves basic and see what they can do with it. There's definitely probably the you know the, the kind of quote unquote killer applications for personal computing are the word processor, I think gets forgotten a lot here. Uh, and the spreadsheet was like a hu- hugely transformative in terms of the way that it created a different kind of way of thinking about financial speculation and like allowed people who were like small entrepreneurs and business owners to be able to perform rapid calculation without how without all the time it takes to do calculation, right? Um, but yeah, so you might do it if you had a some sort of form of employment where you had to do a lot of typing. Uh, You might do it if you were a small business owner. Those were very clear use cases. There was also a whole subset of parents who bought computers for their kids because they understood that a computer was a thing that would be important in the future. And often it was no more specific than that. There was this idea that if you had a child was somehow around a computer they might learn something that would be advantageous for
1: their future career.
0: Like the, like the CDs that play Beethoven for babies.
1: (laughs) Right. Just absorb the computer essence and then have a good career. It's like computing by osmosis. Right. And a lot of, a
2: lot of the idea was put a child in the proximity of a computer and somehow magical things are just going to happen. Uh, and there's, you know, there's all of these kind Which of... I would things. argue
0: it's true, but go like, on. I
2: mean, like <laughs> yeah. before the, the internet, I, a, I don't a, know. <laughs> put a baby in front of an Altair? What do you think is going to happen? Like, <laughs> nothing, you know? Like, You know, your Altair is going to get broken. Um, so there was definitely a appeal to sort of upper you know, upper middle class and upper class parents who could afford to just buy a computer for the kids, quote unquote, and, and buy some educational software, which was its own kind of cluster uh, in terms of what any of that was promising the extent to which any of it was educational in any way. Uh, And that was kind of a first wave of how computers get brought into homes is it's actually all of these like, really messy, hyper-individualized rationales for why people needed to own them, and that it doesn't—it doesn't amount to this simplistic idea that like people were like, oh, I obviously I should own a computer, and a computer is going to do great things for me. Most people were bought one thinking the amazing proposition was going to happen, and you can actually find articles in places like InfoWorld from the mid nineteen eighties where they're like, oh, we never figured it out where like, like actual industry commentators are saying, we never, especially with regards to home computing, they're saying we never figured out VisiCalc for the home. We don't know the reason a person would own a computer in their home if they're not buying a word processor. And you know what you don't need? You don't need to buy a new word processor every year. So that kind of left the software market with like a big question mark over its head. It's like, how do we sell stuff if like most of the proposition is around these very is these like broad, but in some sense specific use cases. Um, and that was part of a, a kind of flattening or a, a there was a bubble that pops in the software industry around 1984. It, that bubble is actually what took down Softalk uh, because once companies stopped paying their advertising uh, bills, which was one of the first things they stopped paying, Uh, Then Softalk couldn't pay its printer and then Softalk just stopped printing. Uh, So its last issue was September 1984, I believe. And there was like no discussion. There's no like mention of like, this is our last issue. It's very clear that they did not know that was their last issue. Uh, it's It's really a bummer that I think all of the financial stuff just sort of like caught up to them. Uh, in this uh, kind of very rapid and unexpected way because the whole industry was sort of, the bottom was kind of going out from under it at that time.
1: So maybe a weird question. Were people buying these magazines to figure out why they bought a computer? Because-
2: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think to to sell. So there's an interesting mix of magazines. You have what I would think of is kind of hardcore hobbyist magazines. So that's your Byte magazine. That's like things like Micro 6502, which was literally a magazine about a certain kind of microprocessor. Like if you could imagine being that guy. So um, you know, there was like Killabod. Uh and then there were of course the newsletters that circulated or that circulated around specific hobbyist communities. So. Uh, the, you know, Apple users of Puget Sound had a really popular newsletter that called Apple, right, that circulated nationwide. And if you were in a, you know, kind of metropolitan or, or you know, semi-suburban area where there was a, a big collective of computer users, you might have access to a newsletter like that. Those kinds of things, those people knew why they owned computers, right? So hobbyist interests were different. Hobbyists were interested in the exploitation of the edge of the capacity of the machine, right? They were interested in like the ways in which it was confounding and challenging, and they wanted to make it do tricks and they wanted to exploit the limitations of the machine. Uh, or in some cases they actually were just occupied They were, they, they worked in this area or had started businesses in this area, but then you have a different category of people, right? The, the market sort of figures out if magazines want more readers and investors want to make their money back and software developers want to sell more you have to convince somebody besides hobbyists to buy a computer and so mag the uh, a subset of magazines get be uh, kind of rise up that are com- kind of about this trying to negotiate for people getting them to understand like what the use of a computer was and i th- i think of soft talk as one of the most prominent of of that type uh, it was the only independent one, so there's a like popular computing. I think comes out around the same time, and there's a few magazines that are actually owned by major publishers like McGraw Hill uh, that are that are very specifically carrying water for these like major publishing and uh, telecom outlets to, ch- in hopes of shifting public opinion about the utility of computing. And then you get a couple years deeper and you get like, like Compute is a, is a lighter magazine in a, in some sense. Or Family Computing, which I think is a really epic example, which is just like a magazine that is literally about how do you use a computer with your family? And so that magazine, which starts in, I'm going to say, oh, 82, 83, a couple years into the, the software market. That magazine is, you know, it's got like, a glossary of computer terms it's literally has articles addressing computer phobia right like i was a person who was scared to use a computer and now i'm a person who is uses my computer for all sorts of things there's all these dumb human interest articles about like using your computer to garden or using your computer to like where you're like no no one would do this right it's the it's the like do you want to use your computer to catalog your recipes like why would anyone do that except for the excitement of thinking you had computerized that part of your life. And so, uh, yeah, a big chunk of these magazines were about trying to get people to imagine how their lives could be computerized. Right. And so maybe you bought the computer to have a word processor, but what about all of these other ways that you can imagine your day-to-day activities being computerizable? And there was a real effort, uh, a lot of it unsuccessful because the fact is a lot of that stuff was just not very efficient. Um, digitizing pen and paper processes on something like an Apple II just sucked, and it didn't make it any easier, you know. Um, but yeah, there, getting people to reframe what they thought a computer could do for them was involved the entire arm of the, like the journalistic industry around computing during this time. So.
0: Let's uh, let's talk about the Apple II specifically. I mean that that is what Softalk was about. Um, it was an Apple II only magazine. Um, there were magazines about the TRS-80 and stuff like that, but but it. Uh, why is the Apple II like? Is the Apple II just the winner? Like like when I think of any like Western you know computer game developer of note they all started on the apple too i've never met anyone with like a a tandy origin story (laughs) you know like like they they all kind of started life on the apple too um and and i guess my question is 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 why was it was it just uh uh easier to get into was it just the market leader like like what what drew people to this computer specifically
2: well that's a great that's a great question and i so i have just written a book on this subject and Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, the Apple II age, how the computer became personal, uh, which is out in uh, next May. Um, so available for pre at a link somewhere on this website, I bet. Mm-hmm, um,
0: mm-hmm. It's in the show so notes. Everyone. That's, go, right. Go that's well. right.
2: So the Apple II, when I sat down with the proposition of how do you tell the story of how the computer became personal, right? Without it turning into like an ungodly huge mess. I was like, okay, what if it... What if I organize it around a platform? What platform would I choose? And the Apple was the Apple II was the clear leader for a number of reasons. Um, so it was actually so the Apple II was actually not the best-selling software platform in the late seventies. Uh, it was that was actually the TRS-80. So so a little bit of hist- a little bit of annoying history here. We talk about the Apple II is part of what's called considered the second generation of microcomputers or personal computers, which begins in 1977. And that year you have the release of the three first, I would say consumer oriented computers. And so that's the Apple II, the TRS-80, the Commodore PET. They create the what's called the 1977 Trinity. And that is what, you know, There, are several, of, two of them, I think, are launched at the first West Coast Computer Fair. And that kind of kicks off this idea that there's going to be a software and hardware market for everyday people, right? Because prior to this, everyday people did not have access to computers, right? It just, there was no rationale for why you needed a computer as a, as a regular person. Um, but, you know, in the initial launch out, the TRS-80 actually did better uh, in part because it was tied into Radio Shack's phenomenal distribution network, right? There was a Radio Shack in every town. And if you wanted a computer, you went to your local hobbyist shop and you, you, you could get a TRS-80 there. But what started to happen was that the Apple had some specific technical qualities that made it a more versatile machine, for particularly for people who wanted to create software that really would exploit the limitations of what was possible during this time, right? So my first chapter in my book is about VisiCalc. And I, I spend a lot of time talking about how you could not have made VisiCalc for a PET or a TRS-80. They didn't have uh, particularly the capacity for the RAM. Uh, so, so Steve Wozniak built a machine that he imagined could kind of grow for several years. So a lot of so the other developers like the the folks who did the hardware design for for the the TRS eighty and the Commodore PET they imagined much lower RAM thresholds for those computers that were just kind of like hardwired or you know not hard soldered but um, it wasn't easy you couldn't really upgrade them uh, you know I don't have all the figures here but I think the Commodore PET tapped out at like eight K don't sue me if I get these numbers wrong I think uh, I think standard on board For a TRS-80, was like 16k, and you could expand it, but you needed a peripheral board. And the the thing about the Apple was just like take the lid off, and you can put some RAM in it. And and none of the other two computers did this, right? The TRS-80, you literally couldn't open, right? Um, That was part of the design. The Commodore PET opened like you like the lid of a like the hood of a car, right? And the 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 Apple's ability to It was that Wozniak had an understanding that prices were going to drop fast and that people would want to expand and their own stuff, right? The fact that the Apple II comes out without a monitor, right? The TRS-80, built-in monitor. The Commodore PET, built-in monitor. Wozniak was like, people are going to want to supply their own monitors. And this way, as monitors get better, right, or as people want to upgrade from black and white to color, they can do that. Uh, one of the reasons this was such an important platform for gaming was around the high res graphics mode, which was something that Wozniak had like custom engineered. It's very confusing. I tend to barely understand it myself. But the Apple II, I talk about it some, uh, probably more coherently in a chapter I have about Mystery House, Sierra Online's first game. But you could produce a, uh, a kind of bigger and more detailed image than the other two systems could. Uh, and so there was just a lot of these really subtle, exploitable qualities that the Apple II had that made it slow to sell at the very start because it was so expensive. But once people realized, um, uh, and in particular in 1979, when they, they were the first uh, to release a floppy disk and that that was a real game changer because cassette based storage was just a nightmare uh, it was really slow and really tedious and you couldn't build hardcore software using a cassette drive. Yeah, that's probably the other thing is that and then Wozniak also like customized the hardware adapter for that floppy disk dr- peripheral uh, to sort of max out its capacity. And so when Apple launched with that drive... It was cheaper than anyone else's drive, um, but I think even had a few extra kind of. Um, I think it, I think because it was what Wozniak had done, um, it could hold even just a few extra kilobytes of of data. Maybe don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. I would have to I would have to reread my notes on that. But when that floppy disk technology changed the what was possible to produce for a computer. Uh, something like VisiCalc cannot be created on a cassette. Something like, I mean, maybe you could do Mystery House on a cassette, but like just the, the problem of load time was, was really real. And so Apple was like very early to market with a floppy disk drive that was very inexpensive, extremely reliable, and could continue to grow with the machine. And so it's after 79 that we see a big transition in software developers converging toward the Apple. Another component of this is that for folks who produced for the T is that basically Apple was an open system. They produced a, uh, I believe it was the blue book uh, that just kind of like gave everyone the hardware schematics, right? I think it took a little while to get Wozniak to actually like correctly annotate everything. But also Apple was not interested in throttling who made what for their system. And so in contrast, the radio shacks, T-R-S-80 radio shack said, you can't sell stuff in our stores without our permission. We will not sell third-party software, which means if you're a developer, why the f- are you developing for the TRS-80, right? Because basically the manufacturer has already said, unless you make a deal with us so that we get some of your royalties, you're not going to sell your stuff in our store. You can sell it in a magazine, you can sell it on the sidewalk, but you can't sell it in our stores. And so there's this kind of, there's like these technical conditions and there's these kind of industrial conditions that converge to make Apple, um, by 1980, 1981, it really bursts out uh, in terms of software development. And so by 83, I believe it has the largest library of software of any microcomputer of the period. And this was really good for Apple because it meant that people were still willing to pay too much for an Apple II, because of the software library, and so that that the depth of the software library and its general quality has a knock-on effect that extends the longevity of this machine, uh, particularly in like domestic and educational settings, right? So yeah, where it almost
0: seems like it's perceived as like the real one, right? Yeah,
2: where it's like, do you want immediate access? Do you want to buy this new computer that nobody's made software for, or do you want to buy the computer that there are like you know, thousands of pieces of software for, right? And if you're a computer user who doesn't know a lot about computers and you maybe don't know why you should be buying a computer anyway, what you're going to buy is the computer where there's already a bunch of programs for it.
0: So how did Margot uh, get into the Apple too? How did she acquire one?
2: (laughs) Uh, It's a kind of circuitous story. I ask
0: as if I don't know.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Stephen Levy talks about this, uh, in his book, Hackers, but, um, so, first, somewhat infamously, uh Margot was like on a game show called Password Plus, which feels like a little bit of like hundred thousand dollar pyramid or something you're you're given a word and you have to say clues to get the other person to to say the word um but she winds up winning and she gets something like fifteen thousand dollars, which just must have been like so much money. You know, at that in in the late or in the mid nineteen seventies, and she decides she's going to do a couple different things with it, and one of them is that her and Al wanted to buy a computer. It's not clear why they wanted to buy a computer. They just had a sense that it was a thing that they should do, and so they didn't know
0: yet either because they didn't have a magazine to read to
2: tell (laughs) them why. And they, so they, they go to a Radio Shack. Do you know this part of the story? This like apocrypha of like, yeah, so they go to a Radio Shack, they get in line. Al is a pipe smoker. And Al puts, he takes his pipe out and he puts it in his mouth. He doesn't light it, but he puts it in his mouth. And some apparently some stock boy at Radio Shack was like, Your pipe smells so bad, go away, right? Or put your pipe away. And Al's like, it's not lit. You can't, like, what's your problem? And this interaction happens again, like while they're kind of in line or like thinking about buying the TRS eighty. And at some point, Margot and Al are just like, "This place. We're gonna go to the other computer store, where in in the city we live in, which I think was around LA at that point." Um, and they and that's not a Radio Shack. It's a more general purpose store. And I think that the Apple II. Um, there's some funky story where, like, maybe there was some other computer that wasn't even turned on, right? Like, they didn't even really know why they were buying an Apple.
1: It wasn't like there was like brand recognition for them. It just yeah, but grew- they weren't thinking of it as like this no. is the real computer, we have the money to buy the real one. Yeah. They were gonna go buy a TRS 80 at first. We're getting, getting a
0: computer today. The yeah. first <laughs> we're one getting, that we're someone getting tells. a
1: computer today. <laughs> I don't want to read a book about it, I don't want to yeah. read
2: a pamphlet. I just want to go to a store and get I a got computer. my
0: password money. And That's today right. I'm getting the computer. The first one that someone's going to sell to me without being a jerk is what's coming home.
2: And I think there's, there's a lot of weird, um, stories like that. You know, I interviewed Tom Snyder, the guy who did snooper troops for my book. And he had an, an he's, he was like, I had a bad interview at a job that I lost. And so I stopped at a radio shack and I bought a computer. And I'd never seen a computer before, and I was like, "What? Like, <laughs> uh, there's there's tons of these strange. I guess I bought it because I'm supposed to, right? Like, that's why the f- that's how I own an NFT, right? It's just like I thought I should, I guess. Um, so yeah, they get they get this apple, and there's not a lot of detail on like what they even do with it. I think they like practiced a little basic programming, but at some point they were looking at the software listings of a, of a company called, um, was it Softline? Uh, I'm blanking on the soft key. Maybe first of all, everything had soft in front of it. So like good Mm -hmm. luck trying to remember what companies, which, um, but basically they get into a collaboration with a publisher that had an underutilized magazine and they wind up kind of like taking over on their behalf. I'm not exactly sure what the financial arrangements are. I've never really heard anyone talk about them, but, my understanding is that this is sort of Margot and Al's shop lock, stock and barrel. Like, like no one's telling them what to do. They get to run all of the features. There's an incredible, I would say kind of um, tonal continuity throughout the four years that the magazine runs. You can tell it's being released by a singular voice. Uh, And yeah, you know, this magazine, when Margot wrote the editorial for the first issue in September, 1980, she said, this is not a programming magazine. And that had to have been like way to drop the mic, like like in, in 1980, right? Yeah. Uh, the idea that you were going to have a, pro- a computer magazine that's not about programming was mind blowing. There was no precedent for that. Uh, and so things that Soft Talk did was it had these, it was always looking for human interest stories. It was trying to show people, Look at the fantastical uses that the Apple II gets up to. Like, here's an Apple II in space. Here's an Apple II they use to help with computer graphics for the new Star Wars. Here's an Apple II that's running, uh, you know, baseball figures for the the MLB. And so she always had her journalists out on a hunt for, like, what's the unbelievable story of the Apple II that's be behind all of these extraordinary Uh, life events or or kind of cultural happenings and stuff like that
1: so how does she like how does she know to do this what is her and al's background to (laughs) kind of inspire something entirely new that no one else was doing in this space
2: yeah so so they both had backgrounds in publishing so margo i think margo had originally gone out to la to I think be a model or an actress if I remember correctly from when I, when I met with her once very briefly Uh, and you know, didn't work out, but she, she started doing just like freelance writing. And so she did like kind of human interest stuff. She wrote for like in-flight magazines and stuff like that. I think she did copy editing work and Al had worked at variety and that winds up becoming um, really important for soft talk because Al knew how to or he had seen or had proximity to how you do sales calculations when you are trying to say like what are the top 10 best-selling records right of this month and al brought that knowledge to soft talk so that soft talk could do those same things for software which was also like why this magazine was so important no other magazine uh, did this for their market at this level of granularity. Usually, if you were trying to do software sales, often what was relied on was the reporting of the publisher or the distributor, which only tells you how many they sent out. It doesn't actually tell you how many sold. What Al did was he had a random sample of computer mag of computer stores from across the country. And he would call up a bunch of them once a month and say, what are your top 10 sales in this category, in this category, in this category? So he knew what was actually moving units on the floor in computer shops, which is like a just astounding level of information that you can't get anywhere else. And then he was able to use that information to measure not just like what was selling most, but relative strength. So he, he had a little like algorithm for figuring out if this many uh, VisiCalc were sold versus this many of LoadRunner, Runner, like what's the, what's the relative strength of these things, um, both within a given month, but you could also compare the month to month and figure out like what was selling best when, what kinds of software. And that was essential information for a lot of these companies. They relied on it to understand, so that they knew what was selling of their own stuff, right? And they knew what was selling of their competitors and when new market categories were opening up, um soft talk would build out uh like they would eventually subdivide into several game genres they would have a whole list for word processors for business software for education for utilities and that kind of segmenting told you a lot about who the different purposes people imagined that computers were for um I think that was a very long circuitous answer to the question but yeah they had enough of a background in like magazine writing that they saw an opportunity I don't you know, it. I've never, I don't know, and I never got the chance to ask of what their, like, community culture was like. I don't know if they were part of a user's group. I don't know how they got in, if they got in touch with other people who used Apples. But there just seemed to be something so sticky to them uh, about this machine and the, the, the energy it seemed to attract Right. I don't I don't think anyone's ever gotten any biographical information on like exactly what the nature of that was or how they found other people in a network. Um, It would have been easy, you know, if they were in L.A., it would have been easier than in many other places to find communities of like minded folks. Uh, But, yeah, something and it happened pretty fast. Right. It was only I'm not even sure. I think they got that computer in 78, maybe even 79. And they had a magazine you know, fall of 1980.
0: Yeah. The, the password episode is from 79. And oh, Jesus. Yeah. God! It's that <laughs> yeah.
2: fast. Yeah.
0: yeah. 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 It seems like it, it's very yeah. quick. Yeah. And that, and that's the air date, not the, <laughs> of, of that episode too. So, um, yeah. Um, you know, you were, you were talking about, um, Al's, uh, you know, calling stores and sort of getting the, 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 the scoop on, on the sell through numbers. Um, and, you had a line that really stuck with me in your Verge article, which is that those monthly lists um, allowed the industry to recognize itself as an industry. I found that really interesting.
2: Yeah. I, borrowed borrow some of that insight from uh, Doug Carlston. wrote a book that was published in 1984, 1985 called software people. And it's, it's, a, he published it the same year that Stephen Levy published hackers. And there was just like no hope for Doug's little book. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, it's, you know, pretty autobiographical. There's a big chunk about Doug and his upbringing and how they founded Broderbund. But he talks a lot about what those early years of what was called the brotherhood, right? Which was the the kind of the little cluster of, it was Broderbund, Sierra Online, Sirius Software, Margot and Al at Softalk were in the mix. They were very clearly seen as like a center point to all of these uh, companies that were organizing, you know, there was Hayden Publishing, there, there was a whole kind of um, vibe to them. One of the one of the best places you can see this is, I believe in 81, Soft Talk spins out a magazine called Softline, which is a, just focused on games. And in one of the very early issues, maybe the first one, there's an entire article about the fact that a bunch of game publishers went on a whitewater rafting trip together. And it's just like, it's just like, what is this as journalism? Like, first of all, right? And so it's all of these pictures of just like, you know, Doug and Kathy and Jerry, you know, all these people just like frolicking in these like whitewater rafts and talking. And it's just a day by day account of like, and this is when Roberta took a jump off a cliff. And this is what they had at their picnic. And it's kind of inexplicable, but it gives you a sense of how small and interknit all of these people were that they even turned that into their own journalism uh and they thought that people would be interested in reading about the, the <laughs> industry level activities right uh, i i really struggle to find a comparative uh in the present for something like that it's a wild article and it's it's so insidery well, it's
0: like, um, you know, we, at the the foundation, you know, we, we collect magazines that just cover game software from all perspectives. one of them being like the coin op trade magazine, oh, like yeah. replay and play meter. And, and that's what it makes me think of because most of the editorial in those magazines, it's like, here's a photo of us with the sales guy from Nintendo. <laughs>
2: yes. Yeah.
0: What do you think?
2: Yeah. It's show <laughs> and tell big chunks of it. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, and you can, yeah, I think that kind of stuff was really important for the, for all of these people who were kind of off in their own little businesses that they were usually running out of their houses, right? Um, to realize that they were all co-participants in something and to create that sensation before you have the internet, before you have, like, I can take a selfie of myself with my friends. And then, you know, like, like the, the challenge of making people feel like they were all participating in something. I think the phone is probably a really big unsung hero of this story that I think these people were on the phone with each other. And that was a thing that made this feel immediate and present, um, yeah, they 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 didn't realize, I think, their own economic and social impact until they could see it reflected in this magazine.
1: I mean, is that kind of the the legacy of Margot? I mean, you had a bunch of really beautiful um, kind of uh, thoughts from really big people in this early industry uh, who were just like, oh my God, yeah, we, we couldn't have done this without her. I mean, is that... It's wild to me that that this is someone who's not super well known now that all of these people consider her so highly influential to like the growth of the entire industry.
2: That's yeah, it's a great point. I really give a big uh, shout out and credit to my editor at The Verge, uh, Alex Krantz, who I, I presume wrote that headline. I didn't come up with it, but it was like the most important woman at Apple never worked for Apple. Um, or the most important woman in Apple history never worked for Apple. Yeah, it's like really, that. really good. Yeah, um, And yeah, you know, I remember meeting John Romero some years ago where he started talking to me about Margot Comstock and he was like, yeah, we called her the glue because that was what she did. She was the person who introduced Richard Garriott to Ken and Roberta at a dinner Because Garriott was looking for a publisher for his second game, right? Al, as I talk about in the article, Al and Margot were so. They had a real, um, I feel like, uh, parental relationship with Richard Garriott. I think that comes across in interviews I've seen with Margot, where Richard Garriott was like at their Thanksgiving. You know, Um, they were kind of like taking care of that messy little guy. When he was still just like a dude wearing a, you know, wearing a suit of armor at a at a conference, Marco was in her early forties. That blows my mind. She was my age when she just decided that she was gonna found a like computer journalism mag- outlet, and and uh, kind of found herself centered in the middle of all of this stuff. So everyone remembers her, and and I think for me, we have a real problem knowing how to tell those kinds of stories. And so, you know, history, de- the, the kind of traditional computing or video game history that wants to organize itself around a specific set of games or uh, this list of like founders of companies really misses this larger cultural moment that it's like this is all about a collective and collectives require many different kinds of operators. You need someone in the center of a scene to bind everyone together, right? If you think about any social group, right, you have the person who, like, knows everything before everyone else does and is always making sure everyone has the right information, but they're often not the person in charge. And so part of that, what I wanted to express in, in, in what is in some ways a tribute, some ways an obituary, was that we... Need to find ways of allowing other people into these histories and imagine that, like the center we think is the center, maybe isn't. Um, And that's a that is a that is specifically a problem with how we imagine what is historically significant. And I think Margot is this really rad opportunity to to think differently about historical significance. And there's so much like poignancy and impact in the work that she did and the way that people remember her that it's it's like indisputable that she was incredibly important and so ridiculous that we don't have a history that can remember her
0: yeah you know what it reminds me the most of um and maybe it's just because you're in front of me is your own work you know like the way that that when you're studying Sierra online, you're talking to I don't remember specifically, but it's like the warehouse people yeah. <laughs> you know that, from from their distributions you know what I mean? And it's like, um, I think it's really easy for those of us who are into video game history to um, just assume that the people actually making the software are the only voices that we really need. um but you know those people making the software. <laughs> They they live in a society. You know what I mean? Like like, like they yeah. they they interact with other people that affect the, the the way that they write and their software and the way their software is sold and the success that they have and everything. And and um I don't think that we study enough um the the people outside of the literal creative, if not and and business maybe part of, 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 of yeah. software creation. Um And if we want to sort of understand the full picture, um, I think we gotta.
1: I also think that, like, to everyone's credit, who's doing this work and maybe not digging that deep, those are hard people to find. You know, when you when you look at the Moby Games list, which is already an an incomplete look uh, about you know very incomplete look at who worked on something. Uh, The warehouse manager.
0: Thanks. Maybe somewhere. Right.
1: The right. warehouse manager is not going to be on there at all. And, you know, you're right. Like that is someone who could have an enormous effect on how something performed in the market. And like, you know, that can have incredible implications. But um, these are not these are not people that are always easy to identify and find.
2: For sure. I'm
1: definitely privileged in the sense that I get to
2: kind of make that problem my job. And so I am afford the benefit of being a kind of professional historian working in a university is that I'm given a lot of time and space and support to be able to track these people down. And that has been a very wily, um, uh, you know, (laughs) I mean, it has consumed years of my life, right? Probably almost a solid decade has been devoted to tracking down people related to Sierra Online, doing oral histories with them. Um, But I also, yeah, I, I do there's, the, there's that general challenge, but I also, you know, there's been a little spate of like, you know, returns to Sierra online history interest. And it's, it's just so wild to me how much it repeats the things we already know and how there's this people. Oh, when I, when I would talk about this project, sometimes people would be like, Oh, well you talked to Ken and Roberta. Right. And I'm like, why would I talk to Ken? What do they know about their company? Right. Like they don't like, they're not, like, what they have is a view from the top. But you get more than one step down. They don't know what the f*** was going on. They don't know what was happening at the warehouse. You know, post, like, those who post IPO, right? Like, once there's enough layers of people between them and how the sausage actually gets made, they don't have anything useful to tell me about that, right? And if I'm going to understand power relations or, like, what were the what were the things that stressed workers out, The people running the company don't have any idea, you know, because it's just not what they're consumed by. And it's not, it's not what they have to focus on. It's like when my, you know, when the Dean of my school at NYU does his thing where he comes and walks around the building once a year to meet all the faculty. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm just like a, like, you don't know what the I do. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like I have a name on a door and a title, um, but you don't know anything about my day-to-day work, uh, what is difficult about my workplace in particular, like what kind of values motivate me as an employee, right? Because you're busy trying to do your shit, which is about like getting money for this school, right? We just have really different, like our, our, the, the different roles we have to occupy and the v- internal values that those create means that we don't share a common vision about what's going on. And I think if anything, a big part of my work is trying to demonstrate that this idea that there is a definitive history to be told or that like Ken Williams can write a book about Sierra and that's the history is just the biggest, like that's so laughable. Um, and so like, oh, like what a, what a limiting way to think about what history can be.
0: So is that our takeaway as historians? Um <laughs> Talking about Margot Comstock, <laughs> is it is it is it that uh, 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 Lane's department head has no thing. idea who she is? <laughs> no, I mean it. I, I I do mean it. Like like is is that our takeaway that that um, that we should sort of understand the, the 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 broader you know reality of 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 what makes games and game culture happen, and that uh, I mean it on a very surface level i'm personally frustrated with how most of game history is mostly about the people in suits making business decisions as opposed to the people in basements making games um but you know i i think you're like years ahead of me when it comes to that. <laughs> you know? and and i and i guess you know what's kind of inspiring me about thinking about margo is 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 that is it's that um, we're missing a lot of voices um, to to sort of paint the entire picture of, of of where we came from and you know people ain't getting any younger and 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 we should be talking to the talking to a, a wide berth of people including people who just played the games at the time you know we're even missing just basic oral history of what people thought of stuff.
2: I I sometimes try and describe one way of thinking about it is imagine that you you can take a snapshot of a historical moment and that you could cut the game out and remove it and just stop looking at it and look at everything else around it and like that is to to decenter our own desire to identify with the game or to think it is the center of the story that once you, it's like a gestalt or like a, a, a figure ground exercise, right? It's like when you're asked to, to draw the outline of something and all of this other stuff percolates up to the top when you have to skew the way you're you're looking at your subject. And so it really does get to a question of like, what do we think the purpose of history is? You know, is it is it to Some people think it's to collect inspiring stories, right? Many people think the purpose of history is to inform the future. I would love to see a world where the future will ever seem to be informed by things that happened to the past, (laughs) you know? Um, Do we think that the point of history is to like document everything, right? I think often one of the things I'm interested in is is, is like looking at people's historical practices to understand the arguments they make about why history is important. And, and because those arguments are often unstated. And then a lot of what I'm trying to do is kind of undermine or make a different case about what we even think historical significance is, right? Mm. Like what, how can we challenge the assumption about that um, in a way that just gets us to histories that are like more, I mean, you know, more capacious, more radical, more um, that I think allow people to be seen more in the truth of their circumstance. And I'm going to use truth in like a quotes kind of way there, right? Because I think we can never really know that. But can we just like account for more? You know, if we're really like careful and delicate about it, can we imagine a fuller, surround that that isn't just like organized around the game but instead tries to explain the game through all the stuff that happened around it Mm -hmm. and i i think the results are like you know the results are in like i think this is why people like my work um and why it feels really rich and different than a lot of other history is because there's this desire to kind of flex back against the thing we think should be the center of the story. And I think so many people are like really thirsty for that. When, when I give talks, um, I, it's, it's, I always wait for someone to be really upset with me that I've like gutted <laughs> your bunny or something. And I think people have inside, they know there's this more complex thing, but they need someone to articulate it for them. And those are really like cool and poignant moments when you can, 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 show someone their own past in a way that they hadn't been able to kind of process it before.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're making me think of, and this is probably uh, a lot reflected in your book, but, but your GDC talk about mystery house and sort of, you know, painting the fuller picture of like, where Roberta was in her home and what was surrounding her and you know, what, what her interaction with her husband was like day to day and how that might inspire, you know, and, and it's, um, I mean, that's stuck with me. And, 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 and I think that, you know, we could all be a little more like Lane. That's the takeaway here. Is That Lane's a hero.
2: <laughs> I mean, I'll take it. That's great. That's the takeaway. Um, uh, yeah, I I I, th- I think I think that narrow and shallow history is really intellectually damaging for all sorts of reasons. And I think that we are building assumptions about what a future world of technology should look like based on a bunch of bad understandings of what drives history, who matters, and like how his- how technological change occurs. And I think that I don't know if I could like radically disrupt how any of that works, but I would be able to like to like, give it the finger, you know, just like <laughs> you guys, Like none of that's true. You know, I'm sure you don't care, but at least we can have some sense of refusal about the story that particularly like an elite investor class wants us to believe in order to kind of make the, to, to do the technological transformations that they want to do right now, right? Um, and so I think history is like so present in all of the, all of, I mean, we are at this weird precipice. Uh, writing a book about the history of personal computing at the same moment that like NFTs and crypto blew up was really uncanny. Um, because what I was, what I felt like I was cataloging was the, how much, effort it took to convince people they needed a computer. And I was like, computers at least had some plausible utility. Right. But watching all of the the debate around how, you know, how is blockchain useful? How is crypto useful? Why does anyone need an NFT? I felt like I was constantly rattling around inside this uh, kind of past versus present cage. You know, it felt really acute to me that this was not actually the first time we had had this argument. Um, but I think, you know, there's kind of ultimately the investor class one with the personal computer. And I, you know, would not be surprised if that happened again.
1: Yeah. That's a really interesting parallel because it, I don't know, it reframes it as something like when people are looking at NFTs and stuff and, and being like, it, People are just talking themselves into having this thing for the sake of having this thing um, and realizing that's where personal computers came from. And obviously, you know, again, like you mentioned, ended up having a lot of utilities, as it turns out. But like before that was a known thing and we could be sure at all of that. I mean, it is it's a really interesting kind of like, uh, I don't know, uh, proof that, yes, that's actually how it happened and it can happen again. And look, it's happening right now.
2: Yeah, or it could, you know, the computer, the, pr- the premise of the personal computer failed so many times. Like, the number of times it just did not live up to its ambitions. Um, there's a bubble that bursts in the mid-80s. There's a real flatlining in the late 80s. You don't, you know, you only have about one third of homes with personal computers into the mid-90s, right? They were not ubiquitous. And uh what drove a new generation or not even a generation, but what drove renewed interest in the personal computer was things like AOL. And, and then that was supposed to be everyone, you know, a, a, at that moment is like, Oh, here's the thing we promised this was going to do 15 years ago. Right. We found it. Everybody jump on. Oh, the bubble's going to burst again. Like, like that cycle is so, um, God, if there is one historical truth, it's that like, it's like, we're going to convince you. Oh, we're going to convince you toward consumption. A bubble is going to pop. And then we're going to reinvent the reason we all needed to have this to begin with. And it's just like, the, it's a very like disturbing thing to uh, begin to track back to this moment in time. And, and uh, we'll never like, learn from history.
1: We no. will never <laughs> learn from it. Yeah. I don't, I don't
2: think people are like, don't you want to, save things so that we can, so that, because we have to learn from our mistakes. And I'm like, girl, you have, who do you think is doing that? You know, like, (laughs) like, I'm not, for me, you know, history is like, I just think it has a beautiful poetics. I'm here for like the, the um, kind of intellectual and literary aesthetics. You know, I think there's like incredible, it challenges me to tell stories in ways I don't know how. And that's what I like about it. Um, rather than the idea that I am like here to necessarily, it, it just so happens that telling those stories is often about telling the stories of people who haven't been part of that historical record before.
0: Well, God, I could go on for another hour about (laughs) that, but I'm going to cut us off here on the video game history (laughs) hour. Um, Lane, God, thank you so much for joining us, telling us about Margo computers, the Apple II, the, the, the very nature of documenting history
2: uh <laughs> yeah we covered it all right We covered uh, it all Thank you, uh for letting me uh go on a carry you know like whenever <laughs> uh yeah thank you
0: yeah um so we will link to uh the uh article you wrote about margo we'll link to uh the pre-order um page for your upcoming book what's the title of it again for those listening
2: the apple II age how the computer became personal
0: there you go um and then uh, anywhere else vocally you'd like to tell people to uh, go to find you on the internet?
2: Well, if Twitter remains a thing, you can find me at Sierra underscore offline. That's S-I-E-R-R-A underscore O-F-F-L-I-O-N. It's a Sierra joke. Yeah. Uh, and I think, oh, and also um, uh, I do a little game industry podcast with a colleague of mine, Jost van Drunen. Uh, who's a kind of data analyst for the game industry. Uh, he he crunches numbers, I rummage in archives. Together, we yell at each other about the present and past of the game industry. It's called Unboxing. And I believe there'll also be a link to that down in the notes.
0: Seems like. Um, and then uh, everyone go read Romchip as well, which is...
2: Uh, oh, yeah, uh, that's right. Cool. I also uh, <laughs> co-founded and uh, edit the first peer-reviewed journal of game history. It's called Romchip romchip.org uh it's a it's also it's a hybrid audience too so we do have stuff that is is you know accessible and readable and friendly for for non-academic audiences we publish oral histories and short essays it's pretty fun it's
1: pretty cool check it out
0: great thanks again Lane.
1: thank you Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at GameHistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at GameHistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.